If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the September 27th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. Out front and out loud since 1974. Striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2 Spirit Plus communities. I'm Wayne Sampson in Hollywood. Welcome. On this outing, we take a trip to the Circus of Adult Magazines. Celebrate the 20th anniversary of a film that warned us off wire hangers and date the boyfriend within. You're walking down the street, hoping you'll meet someone to fulfill your dreams. Someone who will care, someone to be there, an endless task or so it seems. People pass you by, you keep on asking why. It's plain your dream is out of sight. You're looking, 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 looking for Mr. Right. You're looking, looking, looking. In the first few pages of your book, you mention several times that you're good looking. How good looking are you? <laughs> this is radio, so I have to ask All these right. questions. Did I really do that? I've heard that I've done that. I don't know. I, I, I haven't gone back I and counted. I lost count. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. Well, that brings us right to this. You're an acclaimed writer, (coughs) former high fashion model. You've been in GQ. You can't find a boyfriend. Should the rest of us just go out and play in traffic? Well, I didn't say that I couldn't find a boyfriend, but, (laughs) you know, this is about finding the boyfriend within. And then also feeling that the search for the boyfriend was driving people crazy and that seemed to indicate that something was wrong with this picture. So it's true. I've sat around tables with myself and different kind of guys who are successful and interesting and intelligent and then and they all have this conversation like why can't I find a boyfriend at a certain point I ask just what you do which is what this must not be what you want or what is wrong with this picture or what is it that you're really looking for that led me then to this notion of chilling out and finding these qualities in yourself that you claim to be wanting to find in other people it doesn't mean that you can't be in a relationship and have the same need to chill out and get in touch with yourself. So you can have an actual boyfriend and a boyfriend within. Yes, actually it helps. We've totally lost and confused anyone who hasn't read the book. So let's backtrack and tell me what is the boyfriend within? It's a simple ancient concept that happiness comes from within, that self-respect, validation, um, all come from within yourself, that no one else can give those to you. And it's just then a gay spin on that, because it seemed to me that the 
activity that charges that up the most for for gay people is this idea of finding a boyfriend and that this someone out there is going to give you those feelings. Well, walk us through the process of finding your inner boyfriend because I got really confused right at the beginning when you insisted he needed his own pencil. (laughs) So what are the steps (laughs) in finding your inner boyfriend? Right. I mean, for me, the process began partly when I was at a friend's house and an agent from L.A. who I knew came up to me with his new boyfriend of six months. His new boyfriend said to me, oh, you're Brad Gooch. I wanted to meet you. I read one of your books, and some friends were talking about you at dinner. And I said, oh, thanks. And he said, but do you have a boyfriend now? I said, well, not at the moment, no. And he said, well, then I guess it's all worth nothing. And And I sort of stopped for a minute and then blurted out, well, what about the boyfriend within? Um having never really thought of that. And he said, oh, people say things like that, but I never believe them. Then he kind of walked away, (laughs) being not really Betty Davis-like, but spastic kind of, and saying what people always think, I think. So from that, I began mulling over in my head this notion and what I really meant by it. Um, And then one night... I came home to my unmade bed and to the t- the times was spread all over it. There was a like a used cereal bowl b- in between the pillows and the shade was up and I just turned off the lights and tried to go to sleep and was lying there anxiously and thought, well, what if someone was coming over? If you were having a date, what would you do? And I thought, well, the first thing I would do would be to clean up. Um, so I got up, made my bed, lit a candle, made hot milk and nutmeg, and then a half hour later was sound asleep. So in a way, that was the what I then thought of as my first date with the boyfriend within. Um, and from that experience, then I started trying to kind of expand it a little bit. And in the expanding, I started asking, realized that I had these kinds of questions about relationships and life and love and who to have dinner with. And one day, I just sat down and started writing out what these questions were. And I sort of paused for a little bit and then realized that I kind of had these answers to the questions. So I then kind of instinctively used another pen and wrote down the answers. Um, From that came this thing that I call a procedure in the book for finding the boyfriend within, where if you sit down with a tablet, ask yourself these questions that you are interested in finding the answer. And they can be big, like, what does sex mean? What do relationships mean? Or they can be, should I go out with this person tonight? Do I really want to go to the movies? Um, and somehow by having another pen, it seemed to slow down the process to getting to this kind of voice that comes most meaningly from within or from the heart. Tell us about some of the awareness exercises you list right. in the book. This is really this notion of dating yourself. The first time that I did that um, was having dinner, so that making dinner for my boyfriend within. It was the same idea that I realized if I was going on a date with someone, I would make this kind of cool dinner for them, or we would go out to a restaurant. If I was having dinner by myself, I would sit in front of CNN and have a salad from the Korean deli. So same question, well, why would I go through all this for someone who I hardly know, but when it comes to eating by myself, I do this other fast track kind of. Um, So from that 
then I had this whole night of having chicken and listening to music and <laughs> being by myself in an enjoyable way and, fr and then began doing other things, going to restaurants by myself, going on walks, um, going to the movies. So it was really the idea that find that the boyfriend within isn't just a concept like the child within or something that it's that it's something you do and if you make dates with yourself you need to set time make plans and then if you do that that's that's how you this all starts making sense and not just being some crazy um title so you're actually courting yourself yeah, exactly. And in fact, you didn't even sleep with your boyfriend within until page 94. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, we were going slowly at first, right? Getting to know each other. Exactly. Some days it's hard to smile. You can do it for a while. It fades just like the setting sun. It's at night times you dread. When you're home alone in bed, you'd rather be with someone having fun. The days they come and go. The nights move oh so slow And you're eager for the morning light Looking, 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 looking Looking for Mr. Right You're looking, 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 looking The Boyfriend Within, completely relevant for 2021 and filled with romantic advice, problem-solving suggestions, and a little humor as well as wisdom from both the East and the West. The book Mommy Dearest is 40 years old, and the camp film of Christina Crawford's book turns 20 this month and deserves a closer look, as it offers a permanent distorted lens on a chapter of Hollywood history that we can't quite dismantle. Luckily, Steve Fry sat down with Christina and the Hollywood Joan Crawford once ruled to talk about her mommy issues. Joan Crawford was one of the biggest stars of Hollywood films in the 1930s and 40s. She often played tough, independent women, and her screen presence and characterizations attracted a movie-going audience that included a significant number of lesbians and gay men. Recently, I met with her daughter, Christina Crawford, to talk about her childhood and the release of the 25th anniversary edition of her book, Mommy Dearest. The major part that was left out of the 78 edition were the years of my adult relationship with my adopted mother. When we were both in New York, I was an actress. She, of course, had been an actress. My career was on the ascendancy. Her career was non-existent. However, it's not her adult relationship with Joan Crawford, but her childhood memories that have haunted our collective nightmares since the original version of Mommy Dearest was first published in 1978. And although until now the book has been out of print for 10 years, the film version with Faye Dunaway was always around as a reminder of her traumatic youth. Well, my brother and I called them night raids because it was like a terrorist attack. And we never knew what caused it. We didn't know how to anticipate it. Well, there wasn't anything we could do anyway uh, because we were basically captive. So we became this little survival team like seals, you know. And, and, but we could do nothing uh, against what happened when she went into her rages. No water! Hang on! 
What's wire hangers doing in this closet when I told you no wire hangers ever? Ruth can work till I'm half dead, and I hear people saying she's getting old. What do I get? A daughter! Who cares as much about the beautiful dresses I give her? And she cares about me! What's wire hangers doing in this closet? Answer me! The wire hanger night was only one of, of many. Very often she would come and rip the bed, the covers off of us, haul us out of bed, me, because he was tied in. She'd haul me out of bed and make me do some Herculean feat of cleaning in the middle of the night, in the pitch black. And then she'd make a terrible mess and leave me, and, sometime, and I'd just be crying and sweating and crying and pleading with God to let me live to grow up. And, and, uh, but one time, it didn't have anything to do with my brother or me. She got everybody in the house up in the middle of the night, and it happened to be a, quite a full moon, I remember, so we could see, even though there were no lights on. And we had a beautiful, beautiful rose garden that the man that worked as a gardener for us really uh, was a labor of love, gorgeous, beautiful roses. And she was in a terrible rage, and maybe a castration rage now that I think about it as an adult. And she cut down all these beautiful rose bushes. I mean, they were huge. Tina! Bring me the axe! And she made us cart them off with no gloves, no sleeves, so we were all bloody and bleeding. It was disgusting. And she got the servants up to do this, too, so we knew it didn't have anything to do with us. And then, to our absolute horror, uh, she cut down an orange tree. And it was like, after she did that, it, it like took the steam out of her, and she went to sleep. It was, as a child, it was a very terrifying experience because tonight the roses, tomorrow night may be me. Joan Crawford's most famous role was Mildred Pierce, the story of a mother so full of love that she sacrifices everything for her selfish, ungrateful daughter. You've been snooping around ever since I got this job trying to find out what it is. And now you know. You know, don't you? Know what? Know what, Mother? You knew when you gave that uniform to Lottie that it was mine, didn't you? Your uniform? Yes, I'm waiting tables in a downtown restaurant. My mother. Beatrice. I took the only job I could get so you and your sister could eat and have a place to sleep and some clothes on your backs. The irony is not lost on Christina Crawford. You know, the very interesting thing is, after she played Mildred Pierce in the movie, she adopted the language of Mildred Pierce, but not the behavior of Mildred Pierce, with me for years and years and years. She would always say how ungrateful I was. Well, there was nothing to be grateful for. Mommy Dearest sold millions of copies in its original printing, and the film has become a cult classic. But Christina believes that the longer story she tells in this new edition has an important message of its own. 
Until next time, this is Steve Pride. Finding the Boyfriend Within is over 20 years old, but completely relevant for 2021 and filled with romantic advice, problem-solving suggestions, and humor, as well as wisdom from both the East and the West. The book Mommy Dearest is 40 years old, and camp version of Christina Crawford's book turns 20 this month, and deserves a closer look as it offers a permanent distorted lens on a chapter of Hollywood history that we can't quite dismantle. Luckily, Steve Price sat down with Christina in the Hollywood John Crawford, once ruled, to talk about her mommy issues. I don't know about you. But I appreciate my mom a little more after hearing that story. Stream Mommy and Dearest on Amazon Prime. We'll be right back after this quick break. Don't go away. The Hangover House, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Dashing, sophisticated, and self-confident, adventurer Richard Halliburton wanted a retreat for himself and companion Paul Mooney as a home base between expeditions. In 1937, he commissioned young architect William Levy to create a modern concrete, steel, and glass house atop a steep hill with sweeping ocean views of Laguna Beach, California. According to the Laguna Beach Historical Society, the nickname Hangover House reflects its position on a 300-foot cliff. A marvel of 1930s modern architecture, the Hangover House contained a spacious living room and dining room and three bedrooms. Halliburton's bedroom featured a wall-sized map of the world. But Halliburton and Mooney didn't get much time to spend in the house because both died at sea in 1939. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Andrew Barnes. Hi, I'm Amanda Burse and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Oh, look, I can accept the fact that he's gay, but why does he have to slip a ring on this guy's finger so the whole world will know? Why did you marry George? We loved each other. We wanted to make a lifetime commitment, wanted everybody to know. That's what Doug and Clayton want, too. Everyone wants someone to grow old with, and shouldn't everyone have that chance? Uh, Sophia, I think I see what you're getting at. I don't think you do. Blanche, will you marry me? <laughs> Thank you, Sophia. I need to go talk to them. Fine, but I'll need an answer. I'm not going to wait for you forever. Thank you for being a Hi, I'm Leslie Jordan, and you're listening to I Am Are You. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. I'm your host, Wayne Sampson in Hollywood, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Since we're giving you a film and a book, maybe it's time we give you a film about a bookstore. And here are IMRU's very own Wenzel Jones and Vosh Bodhi with exactly that. I'm Vosh Bodhi. I'm Wenzel Jones. So, Rachel Mason, what's your story? I'm the director of the Circus of Books. I'm also the child of the owners of the store, which is what led me to make the film. 
I'm an artist, musician, and filmmaker. And for those who are not familiar with the phenomenon that was Circus of Books, could you explain to the audience just what those bookstores were? Where to begin? Okay, <laughs> to begin at the beginning. Well, the two Circus of Books stores were basically landmarks in the LGBTQ community for many, 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 many decades back when being queer was illegal in the city of Los Angeles and before there was a city of West Hollywood, which was basically incorporated to protect the gay community that was under a threat of police violence, of just violence, period. And the store served as an anchor in both the most important gay communities in Los Angeles, and it was a safe place for people to come, but it was also a place where you could find literature and materials and then eventually DVDs and VHS and watch things that you would not get to see anywhere else. Yeah, I was going to say, because you're making it sound almost like Sisterhood Bookstore in Westwood, which was a very straight-laced, serious, <laughs> um, that catered to the lesbian community. This was more fun. Yeah, we could take the gloves off now, but it was the place for cruising, and the one in West Hollywood, at least, was anchored right across from the Gold Coast Bar, and there were all of these, um, you know, there's an alley famously called Vaseline Alley in the back, and it was just a really, really, really significant place for tons of gay sex, basically. Mm -hmm. And then Silver Lake was right there at the junction of... Sunset Junction, yeah. and um, Silver Lake had a really different kind of vibe, but I think also similarly there was a Silver Lake Vaseline Alley of sorts. And, you know, it was also two very different communities that I think represent the different parts of L.A. Silver Lake was definitely more diverse and West Hollywood was more white. And I think that was just something that, um, you know, absolutely reflected the communities where the stores were. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to see your film in Tribeca. Oh, cool. Which was really kind of exciting. Uh, so it's especially groovy that it's here in Outfest. I've seen the movie a number of times. For our listening audience, in your own words, what would you say that Circus of Books, your film, is really about? I think the unexpected thing that the film is about is actually a film about family and family values and religion. As crazy as that sounds, the sort of like the veneer of gay porn on top of a film that at its heart is about a family that was struggling to come to terms with being part of the heteronormative culture that we live in, which is my parents' really just being parents and at the same time having this store that was so centrally located in a pretty hostile environment for so many years within our culture for gay people. And then also things within my own family that led to my mother in particular having to grapple with her own religious views, which were really hard line and were in a lot of ways amazingly, not in line with the progressive values of the store. So we come to see a transition with my mom and her awakening, basically, of understanding what it really means to be truly a part of the acceptance of gay, lesbian, trans, the larger LGBTQAI family. When you say, my parents ran the gay porn slash literature store, in a lot of people's mind, they're probably thinking, oh, I bet mom wore lots of eyeliner and caftans and jangling, and dad was probably old. No, they were the definition of mom and pop. 
Yes, that is what's really funny. I mean, I've had people say, were your parents like two leather daddies? I have a lot of friends that have gay parents that were cool parents that were, you know, not what my parents were. Um, They were just, you know, my dad is a quintessential nerdy guy. And my mom is the ultimate Jewish mother packed into somebody that's also very business savvy, soccer mom type A. So they were the opposite of cool parents to me, or even parents involved in the gay community. So that is what makes it funny. One of the most quintessential mom moments to me in the whole movie is your mother's running around and she's got all these titles. And I forget, is she reading them or something? But she, she turns to the camera and says, I never watched these. You know, she, <laughs> it was very important that you know she doesn't know what's in them. But she's been selling them for years. And that's such a mom thing to do to me. Wow, it's interesting to hear you say it's such a mom thing. Because I associate with my mom. It seems like so my mom. Because I had friends that really did have cool parents who would have been like, let's go to the drag club. You know, I had friends with really cool parents in L.A. They were actors. They were dancers. They were doing interesting things. And so... For me, it's so annoying and frustrating that my mom would always be like, well, I would never touch this stuff. I have never seen it. You know, it's like, oh, it's just so Victorian, you know, and it's like, mom, you're hustling hardcore gay porn and you've been making it for years. Like, what is the problem? Just accept it. It's cool. It's fine. Everyone's into it. And people who aren't like, seriously, who needs them? It's so funny that you're talking about the line that this film walks. It's so yin and yang. Like, on one side, your mom is all about Hebrew school, getting everyone through their bar and bat mitzvahs. And then on the other side, being a spearhead for First Amendment rights, for access to pornography, for people being able to be who they are in a way that no one else I know has ever done. It's so Mm. amazing to see that line walked and... You being on one side of it, seeing your parents, and then the rest of the world getting a chance to see them in the other way. Wow. It's interesting, yes, to hear that you say it in that way, the line walk. One of the moments for me that really, I think, nailed that line, but kind of blurred it, too, was when my mom goes to the One Archives. Because I know deep in her heart, she gets it. I really do know. There's just, she's been repressed. She's been overladen with the biblical voice of this is what morality is. And I can see that that's what she was raised in this really strict way. And then she was trying to pass on that strict way. But when you go to the one archives and you see this professor, you know, Joseph Hawkins, he's the director and he's this perfect, you know, academic guy. And then it just seemed like my mom was able to let it all go for a second because she was looking at this wall, which wasn't like, quote unquote, obscene pornography. It was just the original pamphlets that were in the one archives, which are one of the very first publications that were mailed out. And it it still gives me chills when I watch that scene because she makes the point that, can you imagine being a guy in the 1940s or 50s living in Iowa, getting a copy of one of these? I understood at that moment that she got what she did because she was doing that here in L.A. in the six. I mean, the store was open in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s when it was still like, oh, my God, could you imagine walking into that store? And I had many different men tell me. It really was predominant. It is predominantly men who appreciate that store. And people were telling me, you know, if I hadn't ever gone into the store, I wouldn't have known, like, in 1973 that I wasn't just some guy with some, like, perverse fantasy in my head because there was nothing in the world representing it except a terrible stigma, which was to be labeled a sissy or something awful or, you know, just the idea of being in love with a gay man or seeing 
like erotic sexual imagery it was so shocking and people were telling me like just tell your parents thank you like they don't even realize what they did and so that was the kind of revelation for me as someone who grew up in the 90s and all my friends were queer and I didn't actually appreciate that at all I never understood that that there was a time when that was like that. So. Well, now, what was your personal awakening like? Because when you were a little kid, you knew mom and dad ran a bookstore. Did you gradually find out what kind of a bookstore is, or did you wander in by accident one day? Or, well, I mean, how did you figure out what mom and dad were really doing? So I think when I was really young in elementary school, we had to keep the name of the store a secret from our teachers which I didn't think anything of you know parents tell you to do certain things you just do them and but I did remember one of my teachers was just like well what's the name of this store why can't you tell me the name you know and I was like well I you know I'm not supposed to say the name of the store and the teacher thought that was really weird and she finally dragged it out of me and then she just gave me the funniest look when I said well it's called Circus of Books and she just was like huh and it was like okay, well, you know, I would have thought you would say, like, great. (laughs) Instead, it was just like, huh. And I didn't think anything of it. But then when, of course, I'm an artist and I went to high school and I found my people who were all the queer, awesome, gay, you know, we weren't even thinking of ourselves as gay. We were just, like, outsiders who, like, thumbed our nose at, you know, society and loved anything campy, found John Waters movies on VHS and drag culture, queer culture, all of it, we were, I was immersed in that world. And my friends were like obsessed with Circus of Books. And I thought that was really strange. And I told them that that was my parents' store. And then they thought that was unbelievable. They were like, how is it that your parents own Circus of Books? That is crazy, Rachel. That's like the craziest gay porn store in LA. And what? You know, so it was really shocking to me that my parents were involved in anything cool or countercultural. Well, yeah, because it, it did have, um, not that your parents were literally in the store at all times, but it, it did have a very local grassrootsy mom and pop feel, whereas things like Drake's in West Hollywood, those were very slick stores. Mm. You know, and, and, and Circus of Books was definitely <laughs> a homegrown item, but now, alas, it's gone. Oh. No, no, I mean Circus of Books. Yeah. And do you think perhaps the time for that sort of place has passed as well or you know it's it was here for decades it's true and it's kind of interesting i mean i do think there was something now that i think of other stores in general almost all stores try to do a little bit more upkeep than for some reason they just did not care and i i find that 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 was the charm of the store and people loved that about it but it it really does reflect i think my parents personalities in some ways they just you know even my mom drives a car until it is literally falls apart and she has to get a new one it just doesn't you know the the way that they are is very practical like all right if we don't need to repaint why should we repaint (laughs) and the customers are still buying the stuff so that reflects somewhat of their personality that they were just very kind of like uh, modest store owners and weren't, you know, all about branding and didn't even really conceive it. So everything that ended up being the brand of the Circus Books was very inadvertent. The the slapdash nature of it was just by accident, but it ended up being its kind of signature. I don't remember this being mentioned in the documentary. Were they part of AIDS education in any way? 
Well, in the 80s, one of the things that I think the film chronicles, the store made available whatever was out there in the landscape of gay literature. So if there was something that was out there and anyone wanted to, you know, have it in the store, my mom, if, if people would buy it and there was, a, you know, a demand for it, she would sell it. So I have no doubt that if that, that literature was being presented and produced, it would have been in the store. But what I know from my perspective and, and from talking to my parents is that I think the outreach that they did was that whenever they had employees that they knew were sick, and this is like at the height of the like hysteria. And I remember as a kid, you know, there was this fear, you know, you shouldn't get near anybody, you shouldn't touch them. And I just, I don't quite know what it was that my parents recognized because they were around them that, okay, well, we're not getting sick. And we didn't get it. So it's not something that's contagious. So we're going to keep hiring these people. We're not going to be weird about it. And and they kept all those people employed. And many of them, they paid in cash because they would lose their benefits if they had a job. And I think that was sort of the small, really amazing act of kindness that my mom knew the job meant so much to them and so many people. It was their last job. It was the final thing that they did. And when I think back on it, I mean, I definitely didn't live through that time as an adult, but I remember so many different people dying. And these were just, from my kids' perspective, just wonderful, cool, interesting guys. And it would just be, oh, well, he just died and this person just died and that person just died. So I remember this sort of many, many, many people all around the store dying. And um, that was just my viewpoint. And only years later did I realize that they were there for those people and that many of those people had been also abandoned by their families at that time. So I think that was what they did in their outreach. I don't know why this just occurred to me. Have you ever thought about turning this into a musical? <laughs> it's so kinky boosh. <laughs> in fact, it's come up quite a few times in the last year. There's many different things that are bubbling up. Part of the amazing thing about Ryan Murphy coming on board with this film at the very end, really, when we were ready to complete it, is that he creates TV series. And that's something that is very much of interest to, to them. And we'll see if that happens. And as crazy as that sounds, it could be fictionalized. <laughs> it's totally perfect. It is totally perfect. When you see the film, and I'm talking to people who are listening, you'll understand completely how it's about the family, it's about the store, it's about the environment and the government. I mean, there's so mm. much. Yeah. I think one of the things, too, is it's about the nuances within queer culture as well. But I think I learned I learned it from the film because I, I identify as queer, but within the spectrum that is amorphous and shifting. And I love all of the different letters and the LGBTQAIP. You know, I'm excited about all the different things. And I've always been immersed in a world that's countercultural. But when I was interviewing my brother, I realized – he was not like that. He was not a counterculture guy. He was not a freak. He was not someone that wanted to hang out with artists. And he just was a regular normal guy who wanted to fit into mainstream society. And he just happened to be gay. And this is what just led to my revelation even after the film that I presented like this wild aesthetic. And I think that's also what still exists today. You know, I love Drag Race, love every single person on it, but it's not for everybody. And I have to recognize that that is one aspect of gay culture. And there's many people that just want to put their heads down and be a pilot or a secretary or do not want to ever show up wearing eye makeup ever. And that's fine. And so I, I recognize that with my brother and I, 
discussing amongst ourselves his high school experience, I recognized that my like out there flamboyance and fabulous friends were in a weird way also sort of oppressive to him because he was just this little kid trying to be a good, perfect boy. And his only thing was that he was attracted to other guys. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more Rachel Mason after this quick break. Richard Halliburton's Legacy, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Known during his time as the most traveled man alive, Richard Halliburton lived for his next great adventure. Through his expeditions and writings about them, he inspired several generations of young Americans by making history and geography subjects of great interest. Halliburton brought readers to different lands and different times, writing of sleeping atop a pyramid, living among the French Foreign Legion, and even crossing the Alps on elephant back, and reenacting Robinson Crusoe's island experience. Halliburton died doing what he liked best. His vessel disappeared during a typhoon while crossing the Pacific in 1939. His last contact by radio was southerly gales, squalls, lee rail underwater, wet bunks, hard tack, bully beef, wish you were here instead of me. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRAR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Andrew Barnes. Yes, it's true. You could have more friends, a better job, more money, and enjoy the kind of life you've always dreamed about. Homosexuals in America are better educated, travel more, and enjoy a higher standard of living than their straight counterparts. If you've ever sat alone watching television on a Saturday night, or felt like your life was going nowhere, maybe homosexuality is right for you. Hi, this is Margaret Cho, and you're listening to I Am, Are You? Welcome back. It's Wayne Sampson here, your host, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine from Hollywood. Now back to Wenzel Jones, Vosh Bodhi, and documentarian Rachel Mason, who I adore. Welcome back. It's Wayne Sampson from Hollywood. Now back to Wenzel Jones and Vosh Bodhi and documentarian Rachel Mason, who I adore. First of all, the moments with you and your brother, Mm. it's really emotional. Those were really great moments. Mm. Um... But it's so funny when he just tells you that, you know, your friends were just too gay, you know. <laughs> and at a time when mm. he's sort of coming out, mm. you know, everyone thinks people are accepting because, you know, you never really hear the word faggot unless you are out of the room and then you yeah. don't really hear it. Yeah. So it, did you ever ask him, like, what did he hear people saying about you and your friends that perhaps affected the way that he led his life? Hmm, Interesting. I'll ask him that now that you mentioned, but I haven't, you know, what I think it was with him. Oh, and I heard, you know, this was the nineties, the word faggot was alive and well, and I heard it all around me myself, but because I'm just as a person, so attracted to people that truly don't care and thumb their nose and are like the punks and are just like, you know what? F you. I don't care. Those are like the people that I go towards and they could be anyone. I'm I'm very attracted to rebellious types. My and brother's it's... not. So for him, my whole thing was like, Josh, why would you not want to join my freak brigade? You know, like come to the parade. We are going. And it was like, no, that's not me, Rachel. I am not like that. 
And I had to recognize, even now, I look at these amazing Instagram, fully realized, like a six-year-old. I love this Instagrammer who's six and is a fully realized drag queen. But there's also just, what about the six-year-old who is shy and introverted, who wants to be normcore and, like, really not at all interested in being flamboyant if they're, you know, the, the loudest voices in the queer community tend to be the really, really flamboyant wild ones. So I think, I mean, that is why actually I think people like Ellen DeGeneres and the voices of mainstream Ryan Murphy also just presenting as a normal seeming mainstream person that can cross over and communicate with someone on Oprah or whatever and just be like, look, this is what gay is too. You don't have to be a freak show. And um, I embrace the freak show aspect of queer culture. So, What do you want your queer freak flag audience to take away from it? And then what do you want people who are nowhere near that culture to take away from the film? Because I think they'll both see mm. two different films. Yeah, I mean, in a strange way, I think I was making this film for my queer freak flag audience. And I didn't think at all about the mainstream because that has never been a world that I ever expected to penetrate whatsoever. And so... <laughs> Having, (laughs) pun intended, but having the experience now of recognizing that the story of the film, it's not just, it's not my story, it's the story of the film. I'm partially in it as a character. It's a very universal story. I mean, the way I feel more and more about gay culture, quote unquote, is that it's human culture. There's not a person on this planet that is not literally related to someone gay queer trans you don't go far beyond like okay immediate family cousins uncles we all are connected to you know whether or not you're entirely surrounded by gay people or not we all are in the world with queer people this is our world we're all connected and so I feel like recognizing the struggle that happened within my family that was a struggle about acceptance, really almost the mother-child role or the religious parent-child role, because it could have been my dad, too, who was religious. But I just feel like the way that we pass on this sort of weighty Judeo-Christian or Islamic, these sort of like ancient biblical texts that had certain things in them that might have related to the time and even at that time might have been wrong, can we reinterpret things? Can we find a way to just open up to the reality that the people in our world that are wonderful, amazing, beautiful people, we can be embraced. And we can also try to reconcile our ancient religious philosophies. And that's, strangely enough, I think all those religious philosophies are what lead to pornography being so a thing. Sex was shamed, and hence we had to go this route. And then Now we have this thing where it's called pornography and then the government, which is deeply tied into religious traditions, also adds shame to it. So I hope that this dismantles in a subtle but also very heartfelt way some of those oppressive forces within religion. One thing that struck me, and you kind of keep dancing around this, about you're saying it's about your parents, it's about your parents. When I watched the film, especially the second time, I thought, you know who's really responsible for all of this? You and your brothers. Because the only reason why your parents did this was because they had kids and they had to support you. (laughs) Wow. That is so interesting. Yeah. You know, it's kind of that. Well, that's what I mean. It's a really weird film about family and family values. It, It was like, you know, they were really desperate to, you know, when you have kids, it's one thing when you're like trying to find a job. But when you have kids and you're trying, it's like, 
okay, we will do anything. This is come hell or high water. We're going to figure, okay, gay porn, no problem. <laughs> Bring it. Keep it from the kids. Yeah. <laughs> what made you decide to make the film? A long time ago, 2004, I had taken a, a gender studies class, and one of my professors um, basically said, you know, this store is really important. You should just do something to preserve it for the historical record. And I recently found some footage that I'd taken, and my mom was like, get that camera out of my face. I am not going to talk to you. You know, And funny enough, it was so many years later, 2014, when the store in Silver Lake was imminently going to close. And a producer in New York I was talking to, Adam Barron, he said, you know, you just need to start shooting. You don't have a choice. If you're going to document this, you need to go out to L.A. And I was in New York at the time. So I realized it was that. It was just the the stores were going to close. And it was, I felt that sense of loss for my own nostalgic love of the stores. I also knew my sense that I am the only person that can really do this because I know how hard my mom will fight anybody who would try. So Well, and speaking of a sense of loss, it broke my little heart or that stone I call my heart, when the store is closing and your mom is taking stuff to the dumpster. Aww. I thought, why, why not just put it in the alley? I, I bet somebody would find a home oh for it. <laughs> That's such a good point. No, it w- broke my heart, too, when she made that point. Like, you know, my mom is so, like, pragmatic and harsh in ways, and that's just her personality. But she was like, well, this is where it all wound up, right where it belongs, in the dumpster. And I'm like... Mom, you know, I care about these people. I mean, I literally look at the guys on the cover and I'm like, who are they? Are they alive? Like, I wonder about them. I think about them. And, you know, but that's kind of what it it is about, too, is that I can see that she she's just going to throw it out. But there's also a sense of... I don't know. It's something in that scene, theatricality a little. Like, mm-hmm. look, Rachel, you see that? This is meaningless. Turn your camera off. You know, I think it was a little <laughs> bit like that. Anyhow. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing your story. And I think everybody should try to see this documentary because it's quite something. And see it before it turns into a television series. Exactly. It's going to be the next thing. See the source material. How do people find out more information about the film? There is a Facebook page. It's Circus of Books Documentary. There's also an Instagram, Circus of Books, if you just look it up. And if you Google Circus of Books Documentary, uh, it comes up. And I'll throw this out there if anyone wants to get in touch. Circus of Books Movie, all one word, Circus of Books Movie at gmail.com. How would you describe your parents now having made this film? You know, now that they are in the world with the thing that is about them, I think they feel a little bit like they're coming out of their own closet. And my mom especially. My dad, you know, as you can see in the film, is about the most happy-go-lucky guy on the planet. If we could all be like my dad, that would solve all of our global problems, I think. He's very happy. So almost nothing can phase him one way or the other. He's taking it all in a with stride, enjoying it. My mom, on the other hand, is very conflicted because this is her awakening into the world that she was trying desperately to hide from. However, she's also an activist. And that's what's really kind of awesome about it is that there have been enough people who've come up to her and said, you know what, if I had had the chance to see my mother make a turnaround like you did, or if I, you know, if I, can I just say thank you because what you did meant something and I wasn't able to have that with my parent. And I think my mom did this bigger thing 
by being that parent that was really difficult and not cool and came around. And that actually has helped a lot of other people that have seen the film and come up and said thank you to her. So I think she's wrestling with it. And and yet also there's so much praise that she's experiencing that too. People really need to see this story. So I hope people find a way to see it. Well, it will be on Netflix too. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming out, Rachel. Thank you. you. Love KP. FK. <laughs> you want to do that one more time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's do it. I love KPFK. Great station. Thank you for being here, Rachel. The Circus of Books documentary can be streamed on Netflix. There's still time for a last word. Tonight, that's from one of our friends at Outcasting Overtime. This is Outcasting Overtime, a special feature from Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program. Outcasting is heard online at outcastingmedia.org, on iTunes, and on more than 50 public radio stations affiliated with the Pacifica Radio Network. Hi, I'm Dhruv, a youth participant in Outcasting's main studio in Westchester County, New York. On this edition, Outcasters Callie and Alex share personal stories about being outed by friends, intentionally or otherwise. They speak about people who have made rude and homophobic comments around them, probably not knowing that they identified as LGBTQ. These experiences are common not only to Callie and Alex, but also to LGBTQ youths everywhere, and sharing them can help these people connect to others over their common struggles and find a new sense of community that they couldn't have found otherwise. Hi, I'm Alex, a 16-year-old gay guy. And I'm Callie, a 15-year-old bisexual girl. It might not seem like it, but the two of us have a lot in common. Even though people in the LGBTQ community differ in whom they're attracted to or how they identify, many of us find that we have experiences that are more or less the same. A couple months ago, a close friend of mine, let's call her Sarah, was getting to know a guy at her music school. Sarah was telling him all the little details of her life, so of course she was describing all of her close friends, including me. Somehow, Sarah thought it best to tell him that I'm gay. I don't consider being gay as my most resounding characteristic, and she didn't need to tell him this. Sarah took me to meet him this summer in the city. I really don't hope to meet this strange, kind of rude teenage guy again. Needless to say, I would have preferred that Sarah had not outed me to him. A similar thing happened to me just today. I was sitting at a table at school with a group of friends, all straight as far as I know, except for one who is gay. Of the group, I'm out only to him. He's out to all the others who were at the table, and he was making some sort of joke about straight people. He then said something along the lines of, Only you get it, Callie. I think he realized his mistake immediately afterwards, and obviously he wasn't intentionally outing me. He's gay himself. No one commented on what he said, and the conversation moved along, but I was still left feeling uncomfortable, wondering if anyone had caught what he had said. It's not a group of people that I'm worried about being judged by. I just wasn't ready to be out to them yet. Just like this, we've found that because we are both LGBTQ teenagers in America, we have a lot of stories that pretty closely resemble each other. For example, people often make rude comments about LGBTQ people around us. Neither of us is fully out or stereotypically gay, so they probably don't know that we are LGBTQ. This past summer, I went backpacking with a group of other teenagers from across the U.S. A couple of them, likely not realizing that I'm gay, used anti-gay slurs casually throughout the trip without giving it much thought. When they said that some celebrity would go to hell for being gay, and that someone who liked them would go to hell too, that made me feel unsafe. I thought that if they knew I was gay, 
The slurs they used would now be directed at me. And for me, some members of my extended family are not the most accepting of LGBTQ people. I remember my aunt acting as if it was strange that a priest hadn't said openly homophobic things. Apparently, he wasn't openly supportive of the LGBTQ community either, but just the fact that he wasn't obviously against us was notable to her. Our shared experiences might be because we both live in suburban New York, and we inhabit the same society as each other, for the most part. Beyond this, many LGBTQ people connect with each other over instances like these, whether they are gay or trans or any other part of the community. This connection may be what defines this community and brings us together, regardless of our differences. Many people connect over common interests, similarities in their lives, and other stuff like that. For LGBTQ people, this is another thing that we can use to deepen our relationships and make them long-lasting. And often, it can be detrimental when someone doesn't have anyone to relate to like this. So we should be thankful to know people who can understand us and to have a community where we're safe. Thanks for listening to Outcasting Overtime, a special feature from Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program. Outcasting is heard online at outcastingmedia.org, on iTunes, and on more than 50 public radio stations around the country. Outcasting Overtime is a production of Media for the Public Good, a nonprofit organization. Visit us at outcastingmedia.org to get information about outcasting, make your tax-deductible donation, watch outcasting videos, access our social media links, and listen to the show. Thanks, and thanks for listening. Okay, well, that's it for tonight. Makes me sad. I love this show. And I'm your host, Wayne Sampson. Follow me on social media at Wayne Sampson TV on Instagram. Our thanks to IMRU's extraordinary executive producer, Steve Pride. Thank you so much, Steve, for all you do for the show. And Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Cast. Thanks for listening. Good night. My mama told me when I was young that we are all born superstars. She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on in the glass of her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are. She said, cause he made you perfect, babe. So hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far. Listen to me when I I'm a
must be my self-respect, my youth. Well, a different lover is not a sin. Believe capital H, I am, yeah. Rejoice and love yourself today Cause baby, you were born No matter 